Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Nebojša Skrepnik, Neb. We met a while back in conjunction with a research project, and I found him to be such an interesting and intriguing fellow that I thought it would be selfish not to share him with you. So Neb is the Director of Research, Training and Education at the Tucson Orthopedic Institute in sunny Arizona in America's Southwest. Neb was born and educated as a physician at the University of Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia, completing his internship in the same institution, and he served in the military as a doctor there. He was then an assistant professor and hospital-based physician at the University of Banja Luka in Yugoslavia, and he came to the United States in the late 80s, roughly the same time I did. He started life in America as a research associate at Louisiana State University, doing their clinical investigator pathway combined program with two years of internal medicine, and worked in the Stanley S. Scott Cancer Center and Department of Physiology, also obtaining his master's and PhD in Louisiana in conjunction with the Belgrade University. He eventually moved west to Arizona, where he has been for 20 years. And let me tell you, for people who haven't been to to Arizona, and specifically Tucson, it's well worth visiting. Beautiful place. Neb is a member of several medical societies, has held multiple grants from societies and industry, and published and presented numerous papers. He's also published a practical manual for lab demonstrations in the field of pathologic physiology for medical students. And he translated Guyton's textbook of physiology. I still have my copy from medical school days on my bookshelf, but he translated it from English to Serbian. So Neb is clearly a very busy and extremely accomplished chap. The good doctor also received full academic and sports scholarship while playing team handball and table tennis at the University of Belgrade. He's an accomplished painter who's had two solo exhibitions in Yugoslavia and he's also exhibited in New Orleans. Neb's a keen tennis player and loves to travel. As I said, an interesting fellow with a voice made for radio, whereas I've got a face made for radio. Welcome to the podcast, Neb. Thank you, thank you, Jonathan, for a great introduction. Are you talking about me or talking to somebody else? I just didn't <laughs> you guy. I appreciate the opportunity. You had some really great guests. I did listen to a couple of your podcasts. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, you're a prince. You know, when we met, we only had a brief period of time to discuss the research. But I actually, you know, there are some people that you just meet, you know they've had an interesting life and the way they tell their stories And I just thought we've got to invite you on. So let's start at the beginning. You grew up and you were educated and initially worked in Yugoslavia. Tell us about your motivations to pursue a medical career, first of all. You know, this is interesting because, you know, we, all of us, you know, you have your dream, your life, and you you ask, you know, how you become a medical doctor. So some quite few interesting people influenced me. And you're not going to believe all started when I was probably five six years old, just to visit to local pediatrician, who was a great doctor, great guy, you know, he put me on his lap, let me play with his stethoscope. And, and more important, you know, every time my mother tried to tell what's happening, he just looked at her and said, look, 
let me talk with my patient. So he made a deal with me. You know, you're going to do this. We're going to do that. I'll see you in seven days. You just take these pills and blah, blah. Anyway, it was so impressive. Leaving his office, I told my mother, I want to be a doctor. And I never changed my mind. I did channel my whole education, just, you know, reading more. And it was very interested in biology, physics, and normally later on in the chemistry, biochemistry. And there is a other event that put some perspective on the whole profession. My father worked at the furniture factory. So it took me to meet with his chief executive officer, who was a great engineer and accomplished man. And he looked at me. I was 10, 11. He asked me, what would you like to be? And I poof, fired immediately as a physician. He looked at me and said, well, that's really great profession because we... Let's say engineers, you know, we're very proud designing furniture and architects design bridges and, you know, build cities. And, you know, we're all proud of that. But nobody can be as proud as uh, physicians because these people save lives. So, I mean, it was interesting for me. I knew that I was a kid. But for somebody like him saying there is a job that no money can pay, your satisfaction of saving life is uh, something that just no other profession can accomplish. So fast forward, this is almost, you know, ironic. I think I was a second year resident at uh, University of Banja in hematology oncology that he was admitted uh, from, I think, he, the, the lung cancer, and he died in my hospital. So interesting. Yeah. So and needless to say, I mean, I spent the uh, entire life, you know, reading about medicine. I started uh, liking medicine, I start loving medicine, and I realized there is nothing else in the world I can do except medicine, and that's what happened. Well, I know that everyone you've collaborated probably feels exactly the same, that they're very pleased you did. But, you know, we're all colored by our life experiences, and we all carry our birthplace with us. Talk to us a little bit about life in a country that was torn by internal strife, what you experienced, and your decision to leave and coming to America. Yeah, look, our president, Yossi Bros Tito, was a strong ruler, and uh, as you know, historically, he died in the early 80s, and, uh, you know, it was still Yugoslavia, was uh, socialism at the best, with some kind of, you know, openings for some small businesses, but really, you know, socialism completely implemented with one party, socialistic party, running everything. And needless to say, I think we all know by now that socialism is a great idea, and if you read the books, it sounds so beautiful. It's just not possible to implement because we as a humans, we are not that perfect to implement socialism by the book because things happen. And you know what happened. If you are hardworking and want to work more and harder and improve, socialism is not for you. If you're lazy, you want to sit and wait for government to provide for you and rule, live your life by their book, then you're good. And this is what happened. happens, you know, this famous rule 20-80 or 80-20. When you see the 20% start feeding 80%, that's where the whole ship goes down. Now, this is what started happening in Yugoslavia when Tito died. You ran with other people's money and uh, the whole ship started sinking. It was visible. We did see some serious economical issues and political pressures and so on and so on. I never experienced any personal prosecution. I just felt restrained that you couldn't travel, you couldn't say what you want to say. So suppression of speech was real. Couldn't make even jokes about leading rulers or party members. 
you couldn't improve your career unless you joined the party. And all that stuff really wasn't for me. And the whole country was ruled by corruption, corrupt politicians, corrupt everybody. And look, if that fits your lifestyle, it fits your personality, you're good. For me, that was not an option. I can now talk about this for an hour. I know we don't have the time, but there are many things that start happening that I realize that, you know, unless you become corrupt, in this case, uh, taking money for admitting patients in the hospital, or I was assistant professor at relatively young age of 28, 29, people will come to you and ask you how much it takes to buy exam. And I usually, you know, will pull this book of Arthur Guyton and say, from here to here. If there is no money, I'm going to sell you this exam. So corruption was real, and you could make some serious money, but you had to be corrupted. So anyway, I did not leave the country because I was poor or I was prosecuted. I left the country because I was looking how to improve myself, work hard, work harder, and accomplish something. I just felt restrained of that society that just couldn't do it. So I just had a couple episodes at work that came back home, told my wife, look, I'm going tomorrow to U.S. Embassy in Belgrade and applying for the visa. And that's what happened. So I came in the States. So that's another story. Yeah. One of the things I mentioned in my introduction, you translated Guyton's classic textbook of physiology, how the body works, if you will, into your native tongue. And you met the great man, I believe. Tell us that story, please. And how you how you came to translate such a complex work. You know, this is an interesting story as well, as you say. So I was normally student in Belgrade, and one of my professors, Professor Vujadin Mujovic, who was chairman of physiology, normally I remember him from the days as a student, he came to U.S. because he did spend some quality time with Professor Fisher. He's a chairman, he was a chairman at his prime, one of the top pharmacologists in the world. I think they published interesting paper of uh, erythropoietin and that stuff that was published in Science. So Professor Mujovic was coming to give a lecture. He worked with uh, Professor uh, Fisher at Tulane University for three years back in the mid-60s. So he was coming in New Orleans back to give presentations. I went to see him, uh, listen to his presentation, and I was proud to show him. I work for LSU Medical Center Physiology just across the street. So... I took him to see my lab at place I worked, and he was telling me that his dream was to translate a book of physiology textbook from Gaitun to Serbia. He said, I just don't know how to reach him, how to come to him, because I, I need his permission. I would like to get his blessing. And, well, we walked in my building, and I just knocked on the door of my boss, John Spitzer, and I said, Dr. John, this is Dr. Mujovic. Do you know Dr. Gaitun? He said, oh, Arthur, Sure. So I explained to him, next you see he's dialing him, hey, Arthur, hi, John, we have a situation, can we? I said, yes, absolutely. So in two minutes, we arranged the trip to Oxford, Mississippi. And driving over there, I remember I was so excited. I mean, we all know who Guyton is and uh, what he did for not just physiology, the whole medicine and the way he influenced everything. So he actually accepted us in his house. So I met with him and his uh, wife, Ruth, and he gave us a tour of his house. I did see that big hallway with many rooms left and right. As you know, Dr. Guyton has uh, 10 kids, eight sons and two daughters. And all of them, 
are physicians. You can Google, you can find out that these people are holding good places in really respectable places in U.S. medicine. So even though he's not alive anymore, but he's influencing today. I did see the chair where he was sitting, that he was doing, correcting those notes. He said when he came back from Boston with polio and started teaching, he said, I realized that the notes that students have are not fully reflecting the state of physiology. They need to be updated. So he started spending time writing, rewriting those notes and giving them. And after first year, students came back to him and actually started giving them notes that they compared. Everybody was taking notes. I think they gave him his notes audited or edited by the students. And then he said, I realized I have a textbook here. So that was impressive. And yes, we did see this first handwritten book just above the chair sitting together with first published book. I mean, that was so impressive. And also he gave us a tour of his backyard that I did see a big canoe that he purchased from Ernest Hemingway. Can you imagine that? That was nice. Wow. Ernest was probably drinking and smoking that canoe or fishing around somewhere in Florida, and he got this from him. And then he took us to university. He was already retired, but we had the chance to see his faculty members and talk with some guys, and he definitely gave us permission to translate. And it was my pleasure to be part of that. I did help to translate the whole metabolism, because at that time I worked with uh, John Spitzer in physiology for metabolism. So... It's a great pleasure for me meeting him and making contribution, translating to my language. So that was a great experience. Ten kids, that's a hell of a story. So digging into your career, you quickly fell into research. Historically, these are the domains of universities, but you currently run a privately backed center. Can you share your thoughts with us on developing such a center, the advantages and disadvantages of working in that environment compared to the more traditional research environment? And how do you make it as successful as you have done? That's a great question. If you if you're following development of clinical research, especially in the US, we know that clinical research for many years was a, a really, I wouldn't say completely, but almost exclusively done at the university centers because of the you know reputation and access to many patients so and so on. And then, you know, slowly when research starts really growing and developing and moving, many, many standalone practices uh, or clinical research centers open, standalone is a separate business. It's good and bad with it. So, you know, things are moving toward uh, professional research centers connected with practice so that you have your own population. So when I was uh, doing my residence in clinical research at LSU, I was really trained to stay in academics and take the most interesting and most difficult part of the clinical research, which is translational research. Last phase in the lab and first phase on the bedside. So normally things didn't work. And I explained to you, this is a long story. Uh, I had to leave LSU and went to private practice. And then I opened my own clinical research center. So from being university big, I was single guy, small. And I realized, you know, that probably the truth is somewhere in between. So when this job opportunity came across, I was in North Carolina at that time, in Charlotte area, uh, when Tucson Orthopedic called me to potentially take this job, you know, flying to Tucson, I was, you know, really looking, this is orthopedic center, 
trained oncologist, I'm trained in internal medicine, so my knowledge about ortho was as a primary care physician, but coming to Tucson, I realized I know research. I know how to build a center and develop and what I would like to do using my experiences from university and uh, solo. And what I realized, this is the key to answer your question, is that universities, as big as they are, too much red tape, too much bureaucracy, uh, things sit too long on their desk. Uh, you have to have a bunch of lawyers examining your contracts, financial people, your budgets, and it takes six months up to a year that local IRB will approve the informed consents and all that stuff. And until you're up and running, studies closed. And that's what actually even Big Pharma realized. I mean, I mean, yes, it's nice to have these big professors and names and their expertise and knowledge, but we just cannot get them up and running and cost us money. Every single day cost us money. And they actually start turning more and more to smaller practices and then SMOs develop, site management organizations, realize this is a big business, let's go capture on that. And they start helping, creating and opening up private research centers like Starbucks you know, across the U.S. And there are quite a few big ones and small ones. And that worked to the point they realized, well, I mean, if I need to advertise for every single patient, yeah, it's easier to advertise for maybe some cardiovascular diseases, you put uh, ad in the newspaper, cholesterol, diabetes, but there are many, many studies that you just cannot advertise. You just cannot get people to come in. So they've been limited with uh, different problems. They moved fast, but didn't have a patient population to support uh, some of these studies. So coming to Tucson, I said, look guys, we had 50, we had at that time 34 physicians now 53. It's a huge group and all orthopedic specialties are covered. So when I looked at the numbers, they opened the books to me. I said, this is a gold mine for research. My job would be how to make you interested in new devices, new drugs, new procedures, and how we're going to get your patients from the clinic to research. And that's where I spent 20 years building and developing this model. And the answer is you have to get everybody involved from PAs, physician assistants, from nurse practitioners down to medical assistants. Everybody needs to know what kind of studies and they have to put some work in, call us, present, and then we take over. So my job was to build professional research center, uh, very, uh, how to say, quick to respond, very efficient, but also in order to uh, cost-effective, and make it as easy as possible on physicians. That means for them not to spend too much time. So I am physician, fully licensed in the state of Arizona, so I can be a principal investigator, I can see patients, read x-rays, CKG, sign off the lab, see patients for physical exams, and travel for them, go to the meetings, and so on and so on. At the same time, I was also able to, and we will come to this, you know, build this in kind of university setting, develop protocols, create physician-initiated projects. That's really a couple of my surgeons came to me and said, this is a clinical problem. Can we build a study? Yes, we can. Then you go back to the sponsor, developer. It could be Zimmer, Stryker, Depew, is a device, and ask them for support. This is my protocol. This is how we're going to do it. We will collect the data, analyze, and publish. And this is what happened. So I believe this is the future 
right now in U.S. for sure, only clinics with research centers built inside them have the best chances of being selected for the studies and actually to survive in this uh, environment. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was involved in helping develop a company and it was spun out of a university. And the guy who was the inventor was very resistant to coming on full time to the company because he felt that he was somehow giving up an academic life. And when he did come on full time, he's like, oh my goodness, I wish I'd done this sooner. I can do everything I was doing in the university, only faster and less expensively. So let's expand on that. It strikes me there's a freedom in working in a setting like yours in terms of doing pharmaceutical research, working on medical devices, physician-initiated projects. You have exactly the same flexibility to present at meetings around the world and publish papers, maybe even more flexibility and less institutional oversight. Can you dig in and give people who aren't familiar with how research gets done some of the minutiae, some of the granularity to this? Well, absolutely. And again, that's uh, that's uh, the part that I love the most. I like normally reading new protocols, examining. This is uh, some of those uh, drugs are just. We'll go over in details. You just, uh, but uh, that freedom that you have to pick your projects, decide. Nothing sits too long on my desk. We decide to move forward or not. Really, when it comes to orthopedics devices, I need to have full permission and buy in fully from my orthopedic surgeons because they are the ones to implement. So I'll just give you one example. We did have over 78 international presentations. I traveled across the world from Tokyo, Osaka, Melbourne, all over the Europe from Paris, first world orthopedic meetings in Paris, then from the Madrid to Oslo. Normally every single state in US, we had different meetings, presentations from even different societies. I was presenting at Academy of Rheumatology. We have interesting paper they accepted. So if you have a good paper, if you have good work, let me tell you, it will be accepted. Doesn't matter where this is coming from. I learned that, look, we presented at uh, AAOS, which is the uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeon, on the podium seven times. This is not easy for anybody, even if you're coming from Cleveland Clinic or Hospital for Special Surgeries or any of these big orthopedic houses, to get on the podium at the academy, it's not easy. But we had the work that they liked. So I'll give you one example how it works. This is fascinating because I am not an orthopedic surgeon. And we had the Pew research uh, director of research in my office presenting a new metal-on-metal articulation from the pure. And again, he just went on and on, said, well, this is beautiful. This is metal-on-metal. It's going to work the best after sliced bread was discovered. And one of my retired orthopedic surgeons was passing behind drinking coffee. He looked and he said, Paul, are we going back to 80s? We use metal-on-metal with some issues. We had cobalt chromium release. We had and the post, no, 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 this is a different era. This is different metallurgy. This is robotics. It's not going to happen. And that was enough for me to start reading literature from 70s and 80s and figure out what was the problem. Cobalt and chromium, heavy metal ions release, metallosis, and, and issues. And this dropped. They replaced this with the polys and ceramics and so on and so on. And I know, I know that the pew was coming in hard. Our guys start buying in, start putting prosthesis, and I just decided to write a protocol. 
And I remember very well presenting that protocol to, I think it was Pamela Pluhar. She was the director of Bopu Orthopedics Research for the hips and knees. And I remember going over that protocol with her at the academy in the booth. And she looked at me, she said, so I said, look, you're going to have a poly, we're going to have this, I'm going to adjust this. I, I'm going to create observational study for you. We're not going to interfere. Surgery will go as is. We just, you know, do some x-rays, check placements, and we're going to take the blood before her baseline and then going to check this on, the, I don't know, three months, six months, a year, and just see what's happening with cobalt and chromium. So rest is the history. I'm just going to give you a kind of, I know we don't have too much time for this, but we start seeing the cobalt and chromium going up and up in some patients. There are some guidelines coming from the cancer society that anything for I think 4, 4.5 nanograms per ml, it's toxic. And this is coming from, you know, Erin Brokovich and movie, you know, about digested or inhaled chromium, which is chromium-6, that is carcinogenic and can create many, many different diseases like neurological or cardiac, so on, so on. So writing that protocol, you know, I did you know, have to put some citations, go back to the papers, and she was looking at me and she said, so what are you expecting to see? I said, look, I'm expecting to see some increase in cobalt and chromium. I don't know when and how bad it's going to be. Well, that's not going to happen. But I'll sign on the study. So we got study for about 400 patients. We started rolling, five busy guys putting stuff in. I got IRB approval from local hospital. And needless to say, you know, three months, six months here, we start seeing cobalt and chromium going up to the point when I was presenting and I sent this first abstract to Academy, all over, I mean, they just jumped all over that. They put me on the podium, and I found myself and three other physicians on the podium Academy presenting this and telling them, this is what we see. It was the first red flag. Normally, people couldn't wait. Second year didn't pass, you know, fast enough to get more data for two years. And guess what? More cobalt and chromium. To summarize this, we did open the door for many other people to look at this. And then in the process, I ended up, it was subpoena to be expert witness in front of the bunch of lawyers, those huge lawsuit in Ohio, the people against the versus the Pew. And my job was actually to educate those lawyers and tell them and explain to them as bad as it looks, it's actually not that bad because that chromium is not chromium-6, it's chromium-3. It's bounded to albumin, cannot penetrate the cell, and actually it's detectable, but not toxic. In the same discussion, we had one of my physicians, Dr. Scott Slegas, was presenting in Paris our two years data in front of the top-notch scientists from the world. And one of them was from the Holland, she was PhD, and she was so much adamant that everybody who has a increased chromium over four, five, six needs to have revision. And she was in your face type of, you know, this is toxic. And uh, I stood up in front of these people. I said, can you please explain to me why? She said, but this is, I said, what chromium? This is not chromium six. This is completely, it's, it's detectable, but not causing any issues. We are following these people now for five years. I don't see anything. So anyway, I said, let me rephrase my question. If you have a mother, 87 years old, and she just got a new hip functioning well, and her cobalt and chromium going up, but she doesn't have any pain, 
she does an MRI screen and clear there's no metallosis. Would you actually put your mother in revision because of the numbers? I said, look, when I was in med school, they trained me to treat symptoms and patients, not the numbers. <laughs> that is so spot on. What a great story. So I'd like to go on to a, a, another couple of topics, and I've got quite a few, so maybe we can do them sort of quick fire. One of the things you're doing in orthopedics is Moab. Now, that's a city in Utah, and it's the name of an ancient Levantine kingdom. But in orthopedics, talk to us about Moab, Neb. So Moab, as you call it, it's monoclonal antibodies that, you know, my whole uh, master's and PhD was actually using monoclonal antibodies for oncological studies. It's ERBB2 receptor, highly, highly concentrated in the cancer cells, especially for adenocarcinoma. So anyway, I was uh, very much involved from, I would say, 96 to 2000, working in the cancer field. So when the first monoclonal antibody came across my desk, it was from Pfizer, I guess, and then Regeneron in 2004 or 5. I just jumped three feet. I said, it's about time because monoclonal antibodies were developed correctly and with high sensitivity and high specificity could be the best drugs that can target specific receptor. So that was my first introduction to what we know today. It's Facinumab and Tanezumab. Tanezumab from Pfizer, it's now 14 years later in Facinumab. They developed to target NGF, nerve growth factor, which is a huge molecule, and it's highly involved in the propagation of chronic pain. And again, we had the meetings with Pfizer, we had meetings with Regeneron, and normally with a bunch of orthopedic surgeons, you know, in the room, they just look, you know, how to do. They really didn't understand, and I didn't expect them to understand. This is a science on the other side. But, you know, I start asking questions, you know, how these bodies, monoclonal antibodies are developed, and, you know, what's the sensitivity, specificity, what's the binding, and can they create some antibodies against them? So anyway, I was sold and I understood they are very sensitive, very specific, and so on, so on. So we start working with them. I wouldn't call this miracle, but close to that, you have people coming in with bone-on-bone, knee or hip, completely loss of cartilage, very painful to move, any any movement. And you give them sub-Q injections, first was IV, then sub-Q. And these people come back seven days later and showing me the new dance move. You know, hey, let me show you this, let me show you that, salsa. Very, very impressive. So fast forward, this is still work in progress for many, many reasons that some of them are just beyond my comprehension. I was, uh, as a PI in many studies, invited to be a member of many panels and discussions for monoclonal antibodies, including the safety profile and especially efficacy. And Pfizer was the first one to go in front of FDA to present. And what I heard from my friends, it wasn't clean and clear presentation. I never heard this, so I cannot really judge. But there are some also, this is now going in theory of conspiracy, approval of this type of drugs would hurt some other businesses and who knows who is lobbying whom. But these drugs are still sitting on the shelf as the first of the line in this whole group, and they are still not approved. They're not denied, but they're not approved yet. And again, that was a great drug, even sub-Q, that can control chronic pain and would replace a bunch of these opioids that we use today with all these side effects and problems. So 
that's a pity that you know i don't know who's stopping this or who's blocking this but it's it's not uh, it can be very very complex and very frustrating i know so the thing that got us collaborating was some work using platelet-rich plasma or prp to address problematic healing scenarios in orthopedics such as for rotator cuff shoulder surgery could you please share with the audience what's the state of knowledge about prp for various indications. What's the fact? What's the fantasy? <laughs> How much time do we have? But anyway, look, John, this is a great question. I started working with PRPs uh, probably back in 2010. It was a great study by Biomet. Uh, Biomet was actually producing specific kit for separation of PRP at that time. And they came to us to use PRP for the tendinitis, for the tennis elbow. So tennis elbow is, is common. Normally people working in industry, we have many patients from construction or mechanics coming in with really bad elbows. As you know, many many sport careers have stopped pitchers or tennis players because of tennis elbow. It's difficult to heal. And then, you know, you need just strong moves. So anyway, I was introduced to PRPs at that time. We start reading more and more getting to understand what these uh, you know, platelets are, nosy cells, they are repair cells, they go to areas of injury, they are first responders, or whatever you call them. But the uh, problem with, uh, let's say, soft tissues, especially once the ligaments are strong structures, but the, the blood supply to ligaments is poor to none, it's capillary to the best. And even when you have that injury, the platelets from the area cannot come or it cannot come in the numbers to start healing process. And the whole idea was if we can take platelets, and we know how many, you just count them, separate them, and concentrate them, and inject in the area where they cannot come naturally, what they're going to do? They're going to disintegrate and release a PDGF, you know, it's platelet-derived growth factor, which we know it's chemotactic, and it's going to bring the whole party together, going to bring all healing cells, and normally that hurts, for a day or two and hurts really bad because the whole part is going on, but the healing process is starting. And I had many patients in that study that didn't love me too much after first injection coming in and, you know, I had some interesting exchanges with them. But three months later, I asked them, all of them, single question, would you do it again? Answer was yes. We did see some great results. We published paper, Dr. Alan Mishra, from Stanford University, published paper. I was part of that paper, and that was my introduction. So fast forward, people normally start using PRPs for many, many different indications, and some of them are better studied than the others. I know we have in our clinic a couple of physicians using PRP for normally for the shoulders, losing for the tendinitis, using for Achilles, using for definitely lateral and medial epicondylitis, injecting in the knee, which is an you know, empty space. You dump this in and see what happens. There are a bunch of papers published, uh, pro and con. Do we have any really good one? I mean, prospective randomized versus saline, that's another story. And this is a whole story about uh, stem cells and this regenerative medicine. I wrote the paper and published. Uh, it was invited by the my colleagues from University of Banja Luka with the aspect of the stem cells and all these new developments in orthopedic research. But stem cell was a topic. And stem cell is the future of orthopedics 
but not now, not today, and not the way we are using today. So where, where do you think it will be? Where will stem cells, you know, look, use your crystal ball, look into the future. Where will stem cells play a role? Thank you very much for my crystal ball. I wish I had. Look, I can tell you what we, where we are today and uh, where we need to improve. The simple questions to answer, Jonathan, here, the, one of them is, uh, where do you take the stem cells and uh, how they are harvested, coming from fat tissue or from the bone marrow? How many do you have in syringe? And technically, how viable they are and so on and so on. That's a technical part that needs to be. And if you read the papers, and I read them all, they're all over the place. You have 1 million, 5 million, 10 million cells and so on and so on. So let's say we develop this strategy and we know, let's go use flow cytometry. Let's go find out how many we have, how viable they are. Then the next question is when you inject them, what happens? If you inject them in the soft tissues and there's a contact with some blood flow and some capillary or some other factors, what happens if you inject them in empty space like synovium? What happens? And what they do? I mean, do we have some growth factors? Because the whole idea of stem cells rebuilding cartilage and regrowing and becoming, it's just not physiologically feasible because they die very quickly. And they are gone. They, they, you know, how long they can survive without blood flow and, and nutrients? So they release what? That was my question. Give me some answers. I'll buy it. Where they reside? All these factors staying in the, in the synovium or going down to cartilage? And how do you stimulate? Can you stimulate your own stem cells present in, uh, in below periosteal bone and bone marrow to come up? We did a couple studies, and this is where whole direction is now. How you move? your own stem cells, multipotent stem cells, they are present in the bone, but going constantly in the bone metabolism. The bones are constantly remodeling. Why those cells never penetrate and cross this periosteal bone and go to the area of cartilage? Something is blocking them. Something is stopping them. This is a whole WNT system that we've developed and working on. Now, the more research is coming to answer your question, how do you really work on cartilage left and healthy in that KL2, KL3? It means you see the damage, but not all the cells are damaged. Can we get those cells to bulk up and regenerate and create more cartilage and technically, you know, normally de- decrease uh, pain and, and, uh, and morbidity? And, and this is where the whole research is going right now. How do we really influence what we already have? And uh, I have studies in both directions with moving stem cells from the uh, bone marrow. Also, Novartis came to us. We just finished enrollment for huge study working directly on the, on the residential cartilage to regenerate them. So this is what we have in the pipeline. This is what's coming. Now, these stem cells taken from any part of the body, from wherever you want, I don't see how that's going to move forward unless somebody can really find a nice mechanism explain to me would be enough for me even to see they can actually work on the inflammation because, as you know, osteoarthritis is degenerative disease driven by the bunch of inflammatory factors, interleukin-1, interleukin-2, TNF, and all of them are proteins. How you can actually modify them and work? That's a, that's a million-dollar question. Well, I think if there's anyone to answer those million-dollar questions, it, it's you. I'm going to close with a question for you, Neb. If you had three wishes to improve global health, what would they be? 
boy, I would say, you know, I'm not going to be too enthusiastic here, too realistic. I just say that we have around the world different issues and different problems. And normally what's a problem in the U.S., it's definitely, you know, not a problem in the developing countries. And I'm coming from one like Bosnia, which is in the middle. There are many, many different and much poorer countries. They have issues with basic medical, you know, not access to medical field, not seeing physicians, not having anything. And uh, for them, it's an issue, you know, make it at least, you know, present and accessible for them. How you do this with uh, all these political and the business issues and corruption in that country, that would be the first thing when you see when you see all those physicians out without borders struggling and trying to help and doing surgeries for the different causes, then you realize how bad healthcare is in those countries. So they're dealing with some basic issues. In U.S. today, when you ring 911, somebody's going to answer and come and take you and you get care, you access. So I cannot complain about same things here. Now, do we have problems here? You bet. So my issue here in U.S. is uh, probably, and you will recognize this, you've been in U.S. long enough, it's uh, that this whole medical field is becoming more business-driven with people like different CEOs making money. You see the healthcare cost going through the roof, and when you actually dissect and analyze because of the cost of the administrators and people supporting this, and putting so much pressure on physicians to work more, produce more. It's very well described and famous physician burnout for reason and stress level that coming from, I'm going to be sued, uh, insurance companies putting pressure and so on and so on. So the cost of uh, medical treatment here is uh, it's, it's huge. And somebody's making money out physicians, actually not calling us even physicians anymore. We are now providers, whatever that means. And, uh, I don't know. I, I always ask, you know, I'm provided. I said, did you finish med school? Just be a physician what you are. But we, we don't have a freedom to. So when you see orthopedic surgery, knee replacement runs in 40, 50,000, 35,000, you, you dissect this and see how much money a physician makes and where the rest money goes. It's incredible. And you have feeling with this uh, new venture capitalism coming and the small practices disappearing, uh, physicians' decisions getting, <laughs> I mean, obsolete completely. I would like to see, dreaming or not, physician-run hospital, that physician will make decisions for the patients and cut the middleman, get two or three guys to count and, and, and submit, and that would be probably a better option. Is this going to happen? Probably not. This is becoming more business and political issues, as you know. And uh, I don't think that uh, we're going to see some changes in the future, but you asked me what I would like to change. I would like to have physicians be physicians, do their job and help the patients. Because today you see those advertisements on TV, we are here for you, university medicine. The moment you call them, they're going to ask you, do you have insurance? No, I don't. Get out from here. So, and my third wish, and I'm going to finish with this, would be I'm a research guy. I would love to see much more money going in the research. We, as you know, if we put money together, we have enough smart people, hardworking people. We can move this field much faster. At the same time, to see less administrative problems like FDA is creating and so on and so on. But that's another topic. Well, I knew you would not be um, forthright in your opinions, and I really appreciate them 
the trick nowadays is to maybe disagree with people, but not be disagreeable. And you're certainly one very agreeable chap. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Nebyosha Skrepnik for taking the time to talk to us today and for all he's doing to increase medical knowledge and improve patient outcomes. Thank you, Neb. Jonathan, thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, and I assume if you're still listening that you have, please like us on social media, subscribe so you don't miss new episodes, and tell your friends and colleagues that the EMJ podcast is the place to come to learn about the fascinating world of medicine. And please join us next Friday for another episode. But until then, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.